0: morning or good evening or good afternoon, wherever you are in the some 190 countries that we cover, on the other side of midnight, which of course is paradoxical because half of you are in daytime, and the other half are on the other side of midnight. That magical time when we talk about stuff that uh, doesn't get talked about a lot during daytime, like on Russia's show or some of the others. By the way, we hit number two on the Paranormal Talk Stream Live link the other night for the first time that I'd noticed. We, we are, are routinely during the live show, you know, like last night and tonight. We're up number three, number two, you know, competing against George and the vast overwhelming power of, you know, coast to coast AM. But last uh, couple nights, we were number two on Paranormal in the middle of the night, which is interesting because it means that we're growing. Our audience is growing. It's growing slowly, like that old Reynolds Wrap commercial. You guys never saw that. That used to be one of the sustaining sponsors of Maverick, and it was a really cute commercial because they just brought out something called uh, Quilted Reynolds Wrap, and they had this series of animators. Back in those days, commercials were a little more primitive than now. And they had these animators draw this cartoon stuff, a la Disney, and it shows in a Reynolds wrap commercial, a guy going up the stairs, clunk, 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 opening a door and looking in. And there's a woman, an old woman sitting in a rocking chair, and she's knitting. She's knitting Reynolds wrap. And the guy at the door says, how's it going, granny? Anyway, so... Um, Switching gears slightly, the dust storm on Mars, the global dust storm, is still raging, raging. Um, We got some interesting new pictures today from Curiosity showing something kind of rusting lying in the sands with this incredibly baleful pink sky. And you can't see Mount, Mount Sharp, the mountain. The arcology behind Curiosity has been totally blanked out. Now, the good news is Curiosity doesn't care. Curiosity is a nuclear-powered rover, but on the other side of the planet, as I said last night, poor opportunity is huddling, you know, surviving on, you know, watts of energy to try to wait out the dust storm until the sun gets bright enough to recharge the batteries from the solar panels. Anyway, switching back to Earth, this show tonight, we're going to try to grapple with big agendas, things kind of proceeding from what we were discussing last night. And we're gonna talk about historical cycles and have we been here before? But of course we don't remember because we live so short that even in 240 years of the United States of America, we don't have an historical memory. Certainly this generation doesn't you know, remember anything past, uh, what, last week? And we're gonna also talk about uh, Trump's Space Force. If you go to TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com and you click on uh, the graphic, or Dr. Spence tonight for the 24th. And then you scroll down to number three in my items in Radio with Pictures. There is a new economic estimate. We were talking with some of our people before the show about economists. There's a new economic estimate that if Trump's Space Force is enacted, it could fuel a trillion-dollar addition to the economy. And that's really, really interesting because that's not even factoring in what happens if the president finally declassifies the fact that there are ET ruins lying all around us in the solar system, not the least of which are on the moon, not the least of which are accessible to current technology, including uh, reusable rockets, Elon Musk. And if that all takes place, if that declassification takes place, then all bets are off because it's not going to be just a trillion dollars. It's going to be a 100 trillion dollars talk about having the leverage to make America great again. which is of course the message of this video we're working on putting together for the president. And we're betting over here as I said last night that you know this president can walk and chew gum at the same time, not like some other presidents who were accused of not being able to do that. And he's going to look at this and realize this is the root, the incredible route to his own immortality in the office of President of the United States. A hundred trillion dollars. Anyway, tonight my guest is uh, Dr. Richard Spence. Richard's been on the air many times. Let me give you kind of a thumbnail sketch of who he is. He's a professor of history, which is why he's with us tonight, at the University of Idaho. His interests include Russian and military history, along with espionage, occultism, and anti Semitism. Boy, that's a mixture. His major published works include Boris Savinikov, Renegade on the Left, Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Secret Agent 666, Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence and the Occult, and Wall Street and the Russian Revolution, 1905 to 1925. He's the author of numerous articles in Revolutionary Russia, Intelligence and National Security and the Journal for the Study of Anti-Semitism, the American Communist History, The Historian, New Dawn, and other major publications. Anyway, um, enough of all that. Richard, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight, or welcome back, I should uh, say.
1: Thank you, thank you, great to be here.
0: Do you know that you're my John Meacham?
1: <laughs> <sighs> well, you, you just mentioned that before we went on the air. I, you know, I, I, that's a good thing, I guess. Well,
0: yeah. you share many things in common. One is you've written a hell of a set of books, All right. John has two. And two, you can talk about it in a way that us non historians really get it. So let's start with the thing that we maybe have talked about. I know we've talked about it in many other shows. Tonight just happens to be the 24th of June. It's the anniversary, by the way, for all you UFO, you know, files out there of the Kenneth Arnold sighting of UFOs in Washington state on July 24th, 1947. July 24th, 19.5. Anyway, so we've had a a, a a Turkish election. And part of what we're going to talk about tonight is how the Ottoman Empire really got us into the mess of the 20th century. So start with Erdogan. He won. And what does it mean that he won?
1: Well, Erdogan, I, I think we were just looking at the latest statistics that said that 99% of the vote had been counted. Mm-hmm. He had won with something over 52%. It's his next, you know, his major challenger in, say, had 31%. So according to the numbers, according to the way that those numbers were counted, he won a, a you know, what today in, in this country we would call that a mandate. Now, uh, what does it mean? Uh, it means more of the same, basically. It strengthens Erdogan's hand. I mean, he's really had a, his, Rise in Turkish politics and in world politics has has come through an electoral process. So one of the things that he or any of his supporters could, you know, genuinely say to somebody who argued that uh, Recep Erdogan is a dictator is that, oh no, he's he's a democratically elected president. Uh, for all practical purposes, he's a dictator. But I think this is one of the maybe this is one of the changes i'm not sure how unprecedented this is in history but you know, one of the things that i say the erdoğan is an example of is that dictators have gotten a bit more sophisticated about being dictators so something else that was mentioned briefly before we went on the air is that you know in the old days if you were to take somebody like who oh, i don't know a uh, a stalin let's say or or someone from the soviet bloc they would win with 99 98% of the vote
0: i was mean, i was I was Press thinking numbers, of Fidel yeah. Castro. The latest Fidel election I remember from Cuba was ninety-nine yeah. percent of the vote. Which of course everybody goes snicker, 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 because of course it's it's nuts.
1: Yeah, it's 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 overdoing it. It's sort of it's it's overkill in that regard. Overkill. One it's not gonna be taken seriously, but fifty-two point five percent, well, You know, you can point out that my opponent received almost a third of the vote. Other people ran and they received their share of the vote. See, now that's very
0: interesting because it implies that those numbers are reflecting a really different personality. A strategic dictator as opposed to a narcissistic dictator. I mean, the narcissist needs the 99%, but a strategic dictator trying to fit into the mold of quasi-democracy, the sheep vote for their own pen... That's the 52%. That's the making it look like it's legit.
1: It's a more media savvy kind of dictatorship. I thought I just said that. The other difference, (laughs) I, I think, is that Erdogan is basically playing to an audience outside of Turkey. He wants to legitimize himself in the political landscape of the world. So his election, you know, if he won by 99%, that would be generally seen as something that was phony. It was concocted. Mm -hmm. Now, that might work internally. You know, that's one of those things. You know, a a dictator who demands 99% or 90% is not only a narcissist, but they're they're playing to the home team. The idea there is to simply overwhelm and overawe your population by showing that you are completely dominant that yep, there's yep. A simply there's nothing else out there
0: but so erdogan so well, hang on to, hang on so then yeah. you're saying that okay. really the erdogan autocracy that model is factoring in public opinion but it's not domestic public opinion it's international public opinion government opinion international public opinion and it it's ultimately has, it's ultimately democratic pressure against total autocracy
1: it's it's a democratic dictatorship <laughs> it's a democratically or, or dictatorship. I mean, it's one of those things we've we've brought up probably before. And, you know, one of the things that the American political system, and, and much of the world at least, gives lip service now, and I emphasize lip service, is to an electoral process. The way that you legitimize yourself is that you're elected with some sort of clear mandate. You know, you get you get over 50% of the vote. Now on the other hand that, that's that's simply the new way that the that the game is played whether those numbers are accurate so for instance uh, Erdogan's opponents i think they've already begun to do this already in say the guy who got, got 31% and others will argue that they were robbed you know th- their argument is going to be that well he only got 52.5% of the vote he didn't get 99% uh-huh. but he didn't really get 52 but this was a rigged election to produce a believable but nevertheless victorious result for Erdogan, and you know, I can't prove that it is, and I can't prove that it isn't. But one is just as likely as the other. You know, it, it comes down again to this this kind of sports analogy. Um, you know, you can beat the other team by ninety nine to one. You know, you can just stomp them. But that's really the only thing that matters is that you win. And you've won the game just as much if you win by 51 to 49 points. Mm. You don't have to get that. Uh, the, the way to achieve control is, is simply to you know, manipulate the system. To well, but the 51,
0: 52, 51 to 31 is, is definitely obviously a mandate. So moving on, why should we tonight here on the other side of midnight in the United States, why should we give a damn about what's going on in Turkey? What's the bigger picture? Well,
1: in terms of what's going on inside Turkey itself, um, you you can feel some sympathy for the Turkish people, particularly the, remember, 48% of the electorate that didn't vote for him. Mm -hmm. So this is another one of the things that always strikes me about these split results, is that you've got – again, in this country, we tend to treat – if somebody got 55 percent of the vote, well, it would be a tremendous landslide. But that still means that almost as many people didn't vote for the the person who won. And and what that does is it creates, from the beginning, a divided electorate and a divided country. But – the real reason, though, I mean, you know, for the people inside Turkey, uh, for those who don't like Erdogan, and there are a lot of them, remember, not everybody, you know, 52.5% isn't 99%, you know, things are going to get tougher for them. Uh, there's going, There has been a clampdown on the press and on the judiciary and in academia and in all other forms of criticism, and that's simply going to increase. Erdogan now feels empowered to increase more power for himself. So for those Turks who don't like Erdogan, life isn't going to get easier. But why should Americans be concerned about this? Because Turkey is a major force in the landscape of the Middle East, you know, that unfortunate land of perpetual conflict.
0: Well, as we're going to talk about earlier, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm obviously out of sync in time tonight, another dimension. As we're going to talk about later, uh, the Ottoman Empire. Which Erdogan has said he basically wants to reconstruct, or re, you know, reconstitute and expand. That's what got us into this century-plus of war, in the first place. You know that competition between Russia and the Ottoman Empire, and we're looking at nation-state dominance like we haven't seen in 70 some years. After World War II, a new world order was created where nations cooperated to keep, you know, upstarts from starting wars. And now we're going back to a model where it's every man, every nation for him or herself, up to and including our most cherished alliances. So to me, Erdogan, this erstwhile dictator who wants to rebuild the Ottoman Empire, winning and winning by, quote, a mandate, does not bode well for world peace, should I say?
1: No, he's already, I mean, Turkish troops occupy parts of Syria and they occupy parts of northern Iraq. And he's continually threatened. I mean, that is, the Turkish army and some of its proxies have invaded and have simply occupied and administer areas of neighboring countries. You know, you normally call that an invasion and an act of war. Uh, It's one of those things. But what Erdogan, what really gives him this advantage is that, remember, Turkey is still, technically at least, a member of
0: NATO. Of NATO.
1: Right, which means that... NATO countries, including the United States, the preeminent NATO partner, has to walk a kind of tightrope with the Turks. I mean, do you want to make them – do you want to completely alienate them, which it is assumed would drive them fully into the arms of the Russians and the Chinese, and then also, you know, Erdogan can turn around, and one of the things he's threatened to do is to kick the U.S. out of the Incirlik airbase. That's a very large airbase and logistical facility in Southern Turkey close to the Syrian border, I mean it wouldn't be a catastrophe if the U.S lost access to it, but it would be it wouldn't be
0: good. Well we, be we, we have we have lots of aircraft carriers to deploy into the eastern med, so no, it wouldn't yeah. be catastrophic, but it's a lot easier and less expensive and frankly less dangerous to do your air com- campaigns from land than it is from an aircraft
1: carrier. It would be an inconvenience, and also, let's face it, it would be a humiliation, which yes, is the main reason.
0: That, that's the main reason. That yes, that's the main reason.
1: he yes. could he could you know frog march the the Yankees out of Turkey, uh, just to show that he. Okay, could so
0: it. then this this is the perfect time to insert this question. This bromance that Trump's got going with dictators around the world. I mean, he really has fallen for Erdogan. Uh, remember when there was when when Erdogan visited this last summer, and there was this brawl on the mall. With Erdogan's bodyguards and protesters and all that, and and Trump came down in favor of you know, the bodyguards as opposed to US citizens? Hmm. So how does that change the equation? Well,
1: you know, love him or hate him, you're gonna to have to deal with him. I mean, he's there and he and he's not going to go away. I mean, unless there's some sort of, you know, unfortunate assassination or, you know, who knows? I mean, that that's <laughs> Considering he has enemies, that could happen tomorrow. But
0: did Did we that- ever resolve whether the coup against him was real or a fake coup to strengthen his power?
1: Well, you want my interpretation of it?
0: Uh, that's why you're the historian tonight, okay?
1: Okay, my <laughs> interpretation of that coup was a NATO and U.S.-supported attempt to overthrow him, and it failed.
0: Oh, okay, so it was real. And
1: if you notice... It was real. It was real. I don't think, it, you know, there was there is the the theory that he set the whole thing up. Well, because so he, he didn't did do
0: that, certain yeah. things. Like, remember that airliner that they didn't mm. shoot down. That would have done something pivotal in the 24 hours of the of the revolution and that kind of thing.
1: He could have been. He, his plane could have been shot down, but uh, yeah, it was, the it was his plane, in the, in the right? Fighter plane trailing it. Yeah, wasn't wasn't given. Apparently, didn't know it was a badly planned coup oh assuming boy. it was a planned coup and the other thing is that the uh, the pilot trailing him in the jet uh, was running out of gas <laughs> so and
0: yeah, he couldn't fire a he, missile and go home
1: <laughs> you know i you know it's one of those things if you're going to carry out a coup d'etat make sure your planes have gas well if
0: you right? if you shoot to make, kill the king you know the old cliche you better get him on the first shot
1: you better succeed and that may not have been their plan in that case. The idea of, you know, there's the whole idea that when you kill someone, you turn them into a martyr. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the idea that you, if you attempt to kill them and don't succeed, that's going to make it more difficult. So basically, but, the pilot's yeah.
0: decision was either shoot him down, or, but he couldn't hang around to force him down because he didn't have enough gas.
1: No, and the other thing they wanted to do, I'm sure, is to take him alive so they could put him on trial.
0: Mm. That meant see, forcing that would, him down,
1: because that would legitimize what it was that they did. Exactly. If you kill him, then you never make him answerable for you. You never have him in some way explain. So you need him alive. So again, you can frog march him into court, and then you can either have him confess what he really did, or make him confess something else. But to legitimize your actions, you see, we had to overthrow this horrible man because of all the terrible things mm. that he had actually done and was planning to do. So it it was irresolute and it failed. And the thing, if anybody's interested in that, simply go and look at the way that from that point on, Erdogan's trajectory has become increasingly at odds with American interests in the Middle
0: East. This is despite no the bromance. On our team after this that. is despite the bromance going on between him and Trump. See, I'm wondering again out loud because I wonder about a lot of things out loud. Mm-hmm. Is Trump playing a seduction game as opposed to a confrontation game?
1: Well, you know, seduction will usually, if it gets you the results, it, it's much well, easier. Well, with
0: certain personalities, yeah. that's the only yeah. look, look at how this bromance between Kim and Trump, I mean, it's like two peas in a pod. You know, he keeps telling him, oh, they all stand up and salute, and I wish my team would, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, so would this flattery, this narcissistic flattery work on a guy like Erdogan because he and Trump are kind of similar, and therefore he can be manipulated into doing things that are not in our worst interest.
1: I, I think that, that threatening Erdogan is not the way to go. And that by flattering him, by trying to seduce him, by by trying to find some kind of common ground, is going to get you more than taking an oppositional oh, point of view. Oh, my grandmother. But everyone has
0: the... It's my grandmother. More flies with honey.
1: More flies with honey. So it's it's a thing which always existed in in world diplomacy. It does, been, you know, you don't have to like people in order to make a deal with them. You yeah, know, but like there's
0: also the, the, like, the like there, there, there's the them. Kissinger real politique, you know, or Teddy Roosevelt, speak softly but carry a big stick. What's our stick against Erdogan?
1: Try to deny him entry into the EU. That was one, but he doesn't seem to want into the EU anymore.
0: What if he was kicked, kicked out of NATO? Him.
1: Well, then what would you have? You would have uh, one of the largest armies and uh, military establishes, in the Middle East over which you had. Have... I mean, the thing is, is that so long as he's in NATO, th- this is the this is the kind of devil's bargain you have. If you make compromises. And to keep him in NATO, at least you have the possibility of some control. You still have some kind of influence. If you kick him out, well, then you've lost all influence with him. Then the whole thing simply becomes purely confrontational. And the thing is, is that Erdogan has at his disposal a very large army, which he could use to have even greater inroads in Syria and Iraq in the Middle East. And, you know, Erdogan has a large force on the ground. He could affect changes in the military and political balance there to a much greater degree than we can or that anybody else can. So is that someone you want to totally alienate?
0: So you could push him into recreating the Ottoman Empire, you're saying?
1: Well, or you'd let him think that he's recreat- recreating the Ottoman Empire.
0: Well, if he's invading Maybe countries with things- his if he's invading countries with his big army and bringing them under the he- 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 hegemony that's the yeah, that's the word hegemony of, of Turkey that that would be building toward an empire.
1: Well, his the areas that he's invading in Syria and Iraq again we've talked about these people before so I'm going to bring them up again are areas inhabited by the Kurds. So Erdogan's problem, his biggest enemy the thing that keeps him up at night i don't think is his internal opposition it's the kurdish situation and again i'd point out that the basic facts are that the kurds represent in turkey itself in the republic of turkey they represent probably 20% of mm. the population maybe 25% of the population
0: that could be a problem and
1: they and they are the dominant population they are the overwhelming majority in those southeastern regions that adjoin Syria and Iraq, and then on the other side of the Turkish border in northern Syria and Iraq, there are, guess what, more Kurds.
0: Hmm. See, you mean, you mean Richard, Richard? you mean the Kurds are in the yeah.
1: way? The Kurds are in the way. There are 40 million of them. There are 40 million <laughs> Kurds spread all the way from, from Iran, all the way over near to the Mediterranean, across northern Iraq and Syria and southern Turkey. So if Kurdistan was unified into a single area, it, it would be one of the biggest mm. countries and potentially the most powerful in the Middle East, but it never has been. Kurds are divided among all of these different countries, which means that you know between Assad in Syria and the Iraqi government and the Iranian Ayatollahs and Erdogan, whatever their differences, Is this- they all have one thing in common. They want to keep the Kurds down.
0: Is this analogous to the division of Jews in various countries before, uh, you know, uh, Israel was created?
1: No, Jewish presence countries was created by something called a diaspora. It was it was a the whole it was centuries long period of migration. Well, I'm not talking about how it Western got
0: that year. way. I'm yeah. talking about the the political effect of having dispersed populations that are kept apart because if they get together they'll have power and they're not, no one wants them to have power. It sounds to me like it's very analogous
1: well Jews were scattered as, as small groups inside much larger populations i mean there was there was no country in which Jews in europe constituted 25% or 20% of the population you know if they were 1% or 2% mm-hmm. or 5% so that's why
0: they all migrated um, not all but a lot migrated to one place called israel and yeah. created and, and, a and they
1: didn't they didn't live they didn't live the kurds again basically they're not separated from each other except by these borders
0: so it would be really See, easy for them to all say, let's become our own country.
1: Right. because And that would be made, Erdogan's
0: worst nightmare, right?
1: That would be his worst nightmare. So that's the because, stick we
0: have over them because we, I think, used to have or maybe still have a pretty good relationship with the Kurds. We meaning we, the United we, States. But we let them down the US, in many cases. The U.S. is
1: arming. Well, because you know, I'm afraid the Kurds are going to be stuck in that position. And I'm not a huge advocate for the Kurds, but just the realistic thing is that the problem is that they – yes, they will be let down. is because if the choice is between making some kind of a deal or keeping Erdogan happy and keeping the Kurds happy, Erdogan's going to win out because it's geopolitically more important to appease him than it is to appease the Kurds. The Kurds don't have a huge army. They don't have a government. They don't have any – it's all of these things they might be, but they don't have. But the Kurds occupy, you know, Kurdistan doesn't exist as a country, but it exists as a region, and all the Kurds know it. I mean, if you go to the border between Turkey and Syria, on both sides of those borders, for great distances on each way, there's nothing really but Kurds, and they know they're there. So, what keeps them apart are these borders, you know, essentially artificial borders that were established after World War One and defined what these new states were going to look like, and there was no Kurdistan in it. So the Kurds are in that unfortunate situation, I think, of continually being sort of played, you know, they, they're 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 kind of always a bride'smaid, never a bride. I don't know if that mm. makes or you know they 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 uh, they're they're courted, but they're never wed because ultimately they're they're not important enough. So yes, the U.S. is supporting the things called the Syrian Democratic Forces up in the northern part of Syria are predominantly Kurdish. Uh, they are, in most cases, armed and trained and supported by the U.S. And we will do that so long as it's felt in our interest, and we will drop them when it isn't. That's just the reality of the situation.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, this is all prelude to some of our discussion in the next hour, uh, next half hour, or at the bottom of the hour. So let's kind of hold it there. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, and we're gonna, going to try get the words out properly. We're going to try to context what's going on between the U.S. and Russia, the U.S.S. and the U.S.S., the U.S. and Korea, and um, it prescinds from what happened about a century plus ago. We'll get back to all of this on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. The Other Side of Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit theothersideofmidnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. The Concea, our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you as you're listening the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique radio pictures feature, please visit TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell. Automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server. What I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kintia posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported in my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum. If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more and perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by Open Hailing Frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back to this Sunday night, June 24th of 2018. Oh, the year, I mean, the year's literally half half gone. Half of just, just poof. My guest this morning, Dr. Richard Spence, we're discussing, or we're going to be discussing elites and how they basically have tried to run the world. And the most recent example which lasted for, you know, kind of like a century and then it fell apart in a most catastrophic, spectacular fashion, is what happened about a hundred plus years ago with a few interesting gentlemen in something called the Congress of Vienna, which involved the Ottoman Empire, the empire that uh, pre- current president of Turkey, Erdogan, has fondly mused that he would like to restore. So, Richard, how do we enter into this? Um, are we looking at cycles of history where what happened a hundred years ago is is basically fragmenting to where it could happen again?
1: Well, you know, there's a theory that I'm sure you've come across in in different in different realms, and it's the concept, you know, that everything exists is a kind of wave function, okay? Hmm. That. Whatever, whatever happens, always comes in waves. It's well, what,
0: what's that old it, saw? It history, history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes.
1: It rhymes or it rehearses.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Uh, <laughs> one of the ways that I put it is that you know, history is like a a play which is eternally rehearsed. And you mean, mean we never get it right? We never really get it right. It's always a rehearsal for something. And, you know, the characters change and the costumes change and sometimes lines change. But the play never changes. The play is always fixed. And... You know, one of the ways that you can look at that is to argue that there there's some sort of you know cosmic force out there. There's there's something that you know sort of built into the energies of the universe itself. It's all of these various wave functions flowing, and and what these what these produce, even in terms of human affairs and history, is that they produce cycles, and it's a. Uh, it's an interesting idea. It, it's something, by the way, uh, to put this in a in a context that uh, an American president that that hopefully most people listening will remember, Herbert Hoover. All right? Herbert Hoover, not one of our more lauded and successful presidents, you know, because his uh, his period in office, you know, for him, unfortunately, coincided with the advent of the Great Depression. Uh, he was there from 28 to 32, and his fall led to the to the rise of uh, of Franklin Roosevelt. Okay, question. 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 That,
0: hang on, hang on. Question. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was Huber's term administration coincident with, or did his policies cause the Great Depression?
1: No, I can't say. You see, his policies didn't cause it. His policies didn't necessarily help it. But then you can get into that whole argument: is that was the remember that wasn't just a depression in the United States. Exactly. What happened or what started in 1929 was a worldwide economic collapse. It was something that affected Europe. It affected everything. The whole world economy went into a depression. Uh, if you want to mince words, it went into a Great Depression, which lasted years, which lasted for most most of the
0: decade. Okay, now well, let me ask uh, the you, next question, please, because this, yeah. is, this is relevant to, I think, one of the things we're going to talk about later tonight is, is Trump's economic policies because he's setting us up for it looks like another great depression how the whole tariff thing wasn't wasn't the first great depression the fact that every nation was under itself and they built huge walls there was no global economy and we basically all tariffed ourselves into a corner until we figured out after a couple of wars that doing that was very detrimental to making money
1: well well, that gets into a really big question. What caused the, the world depression of 1929? Uh, and in that you're going to get lots of different explanations. But the biggest, I mean, you know, as an historian, I'll tell you this is what the approximate cause was it. The vast expenditures in World War One. Mm. So, what happened between 1914 and 1918 is that the major powers of the world, of the industrialized world, went at war with each other and they spent money like they had never spent it before. I remember reading somewhere, I wish I could tell you where, that, that if you look at the expenditures by all the belligerents in the First World War, you had greater state expenditures than in everything preceding the 100 or 200 years before. It. I mean, everything that every belligerent government had spent its money on for over a century they spent that and more in less than five years. And, of course, they're not actually spending money because one of the things that I remember learning once it was shocking is that really if you look at the kind of you know ready cash reserves that – and then here again is something maybe shocking to some people. Prior to the First World War, most governments, if they could help it, didn't run deficits. I mean the whole idea that a government would run on a deficit – that it would spend more than it took in was, you know, that was just considered to be crazy, you know, that governments had balanced budgets. They had a certain amount of income and they had a certain amount of expenditure. Oh, my God, how quaint. You didn't, <laughs> no, correct, and you, and you, you didn't want your, you know, because I think as we would all know that if your expenditures continuously exceed your income, bad things so are So as
0: you know, the happen. Republicans uh, yeah. have said for years, they were run like a family budget. Now when when yeah, did when be- when did Keynes come along and talk about you know deficit spending as one hell of a way to kickstart global economies?
1: Well, that's after the first world war when uh-huh. the whole international order was was thrown out the
0: window. So wait wait, you mean so, he wrote right. after the example of deficit spending in World War I, he saw the effects uh-huh. of it. Oh. And the other
1: thing that he saw were the conferences after – well, that's when he got people listening to him, at least. The conferences – if you kind of look at the diplomatic history of Europe or of the world after 1918, you'll find that there are, there are a whole series of, of international economic conferences that take place. And there's one in 1922 in Genoa, Italy. And then there's the the Hague Conference, which follows later. Um, and and I, hey, Hang on, hang on. Really my, my, my impression
0: yeah. of those conferences at that time, and obviously you're the historian and I'm not, but my impression was they were about limiting implements of war, battle fleets and, and battleships and guns and that kind of thing, but not aimed at global economics.
1: Well, the Hague Conference and the Genoa Conference dealt with economics. There were things like the... Uh, the, the Washington Naval Conference in that same period 1921-1922 Washington Naval Conference tried to set it tried to stop a naval arms race between Britain the United States and Japan and the idea was that we're going to sit down and we're going to work out a deal and we're going to create you know a proportions you know so you know who is going to have the biggest fleet the second biggest and the third and what you can build but those two things are linked together. I was just going to say, because, linked-
0: because if they'd seen the deficit spending on weaponry and it was not positive, it was negative, we'll come back to Keynes in a minute, their, their conferences on limiting war weapons was really an economic conference because they yes. didn't want an, an endless arms race that would devastate economically everybody.
1: Battleships were extremely expensive. <laughs> really, and therefore, and, when, and one of the reasons to control, you know, the idea is that look, you know, what you were saying is that you know the British and the Americans, and the French, you know, and everyone else involved in this, we got to look. You know, we really don't want to build more battleships, except you're going to build more battleships. So rather than all of us sort of bankrupting our national economies, building ships that hopefully we won't use and we'll never need, and here's an interesting thing to keep in mind. All of those big, expensive battleship fleets never fought a battle with each other. Never. There was was never. That's true. The the only significant encounter between battleship-dominant fleets was the Battle of Jutland in 1916, when the British Royal Navy and the German High Seas Fleet more or less accidentally ran into each other, hmm. and even they didn't want to pitch the somewhere battle. in the and, far in the south
0: uh, in the Southeast Pacific, right?
1: Yeah, it was just so. But nevertheless, yeah, it's an economic measure. The reason you don't want to have a naval arms race is because it's going to keep you. It's going to cost you so much money to keep up. So you know, the idea is that come on, guys, let's just sit down and let's work out a oh sort of deal. Oh my God, not, you, we're,
0: we're Richard, you just you just gave me an incredible idea. That's why Kim wants to come to the table. 'Cause economically it's a it's a it's a Potemkin village, it's a false front western town. He can't keep up with us in any way, shape, or form in terms of a nuclear arms race, because his country already is on the rubbers.
1: I know. But I mean he couldn't keep up I mean, look, North Korea is a country of what? Around twenty million people with not much of an economy, and he yeah. can pour a lot of stuff into developing nuclear weapons. But look, it's it's never, he can never compete he
0: knows that but hang on hang on you say he knows that maybe right. he just figured that out maybe well look <laughs> at the look practice. at the change and look yeah. at that did you see you know we're going to we're going to range around the the deck tonight we're not going to stick to a straight line cuz that's boring so remember when when right after the the singapore summit the white house produced or in the in the midst of it they produced a video for kim jong un which looked like a Miami real estate developer's paradise. And it basically had an economic slash narcissistic message. You can be the greatest, you know, head of North Korean history if you do this, as opposed to spending money on that.
2: Yeah.
0: And that looks like it might be, in other words, if he he actually went to school in Europe, so he must have run into the idea. You can spend yourself into bankruptcy if you're a wealthy country, and you, there's no way you can compete if you're not wealthy.
1: Right. And if you're a small country that's not wealthy, you just spend your way into bankruptcy quicker. Mm-hmm. So what, what Kim wants is he wants security.
0: Personal security.
1: He wants personal security. He wants security for his regime.
0: Mm-hmm. By the and, way, hang on, hang on. I want to interrupt again. Yeah. He did something weird today. He starts. He's downplaying the history of his father and grandfather. What's that about?
1: Well, it makes him seem more important, and maybe it's a way of trying to put them into, you know, at some point, uh, the, the former generations have served their usefulness except as statues. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think that's he's trying to make himself more important. There are those who argue that he always feels he has a certain inferiority. Or, father, or, in
0: or, 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 this is much more strategic, mate, if he's mm-hmm. preparing the groundwork for a new era, a departure from history, a departure from the shackles of those two guys' past.
1: Of establishing that he can do things on his own. Yes,
0: exactly. But, he becomes but, his own. But, yeah. Yeah. That's the way I would read but it. But
1: partly to, to to raise your stature in some way, you have to bring the others down to a degree. And and one of the things that the North Korean regime has done you know, especially to his his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, who was the guy who created the whole hermit kingdom, Hmm. was he became a semi-deity.
0: Yeah, born on on a certain mountain in northwestern Korea, I think.
1: Yeah, there are probably people in remote areas of Korea that, you know, sacrificed goats to Kim Il-sung or something. I mean, if they were told to do that, they probably would. And I think a lot of, I think to a certain degree, Remember, we're subjected to as much propaganda, somewhat more sophisticated propaganda, as everybody else is.
0: Yeah, but we don't, we don't make – hang on, hang on. Constip- we don't make yeah. gods out of our presidents, and we kick their press secretaries out of restaurants because we don't like them. I mean our worship of what's going on with Trump has nothing – to do with what's going no, on in the no, gentlemen. No, no.
1: What I'm talking about is in terms of propaganda, and, and there's a certain element, is that we've been told for years and years and years, uh, for more than half a century, that North Koreans are crazy and that their leaders are crazy, yes. and that uh, one of the reasons we have to restrain them is that if they ever got their hands on a nuke, well, they just turn around and fire it off right of the way because they all want to commit suicide. And, you know, I think you have to really question that and I think one of the things that you that saw and that maybe Trump saw in Singapore is that Kim Jong-un wasn't quite the lunatic you expected him to be and I think that the mere fact that he's been willing to sit down on this now that doesn't mean that he isn't uh, uh, vicious and cunning and everything else but I I do not believe he's the madman
0: well wait 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 this this could be the exemplification right. of Ayn Rand I mean, I've been looking for decades for people who act in their intelligent self-interest, which was her big thing. Mm-hmm. It's looking to me like Kim Jong-un is acting in his intelligent self-interest. And this demoting of his ancestors, you know, his dad and his granddad, is part of that trend curve. He's looking out for number one and figures he's got to depart from the past and set a new track, just like that video that Trump had prepared for him in the White House said. Illustrated,
1: but see, Kim Jong Un doesn't wasn't trying to and isn't or wasn't trying to create a nuclear arsenal with some sort of you know grandiose Doctor Evil concept that he was going to conquer the world. I mean, he could certainly do the math. He can see the size and the proportion and the strength of North Korea to all of the other countries around it, and he doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell. Nope. And, and and therefore the the idea that he's simply creating some sort of nuclear force in order to launch a preemptive attack to all commit national suicide uh, I don't really think that that's legal. so you what, what you're,
0: you're set oh, go ahead go ahead
1: what what he wanted was he wanted to have nukes as a means of security he wants nukes for the same reason the Iranians want nukes you want you want to know why the Iranians want nukes so badly because the Israelis have nukes
0: Yeah. But wait, 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 wait. I mean, a whole nuclear mad policy, which we had, you know, mutual assured destruction. We know that's a loser because ultimately, if war ever breaks out and you're a little guy with five, 10, 20 nuclear weapons and you're facing a country like the U.S. with several thousand, you become a steaming, seething cauldron of lava on the northern Korean peninsula if you're stupid right. enough to try to launch one because if we lost a city they'd lose a country where is right. the gain in that what's the strategy this the global strategy the gain
1: in that is is that you you now have a means to do some real damage
0: Yeah, but it's pinpricks
1: if somebody tries to take
0: on you the down. scale of it's, geopolitics it's it it doesn't mean anything so why would somebody be dumb enough i mean this is beginning to look like a whole charade of a of a conversation for the outcrowd where the in-crowd is dealing at a whole different level with real conversation.
1: Well, I mean you can ask the same question as to why France or Britain needs a nuclear arsenal. Why do they have one? Mm. Who are they going to fight?
0: Well, they were supposed but to the, fight the, the Soviet Union, and the Eastern well, Bloc. Well, supposed to
1: fight that... Soviets, but let's put it this way: in the in, had there been a uh, a thermonuclear exchange. During the Cold War, it would have been an American-Soviet exchange, and all of the nukes that the French or the British could have thrown into it were meaningless. So the reason why the French have a force de frappe, the reason why they have a nuclear arsenal is because Charles de Gaulle wanted one because that's what major countries had. And he didn't want to have the Yankees have all the nukes so that he would constantly have to be under their umbrella. So the French nuclear arsenal is a vanity arsenal. Hmm. you know. And on the other hand, it assures that if anybody really did come after France is that, well, if we're going to go down, we're going to vaporize some cities along with us. The Iranians want nukes because they've constantly lived under the threat of an, an, an Israeli nuclear attack. There are no other countries in the Middle East that have them. And that's one of the things that gives the Israelis a great deal of clout. If you really want to understand why they're the 500-pound guerrilla, despite the small size of the country. It's not the size of their army. Uh, you know, it's a damn good army, but it's not the size of it, and it's not because the army is as invincible. It's because if they really get pushed into a corner, they've got somewhere between 80 and 200 nuclear weapons they can start throwing around. And that means that anybody can only mess with them so far before they get burned. And the Iranians want a means to deter any kind of preemptive attack. They want to at least, you know, even if they don't have as many nuclear weapons they want to narrow that gap some degree. So the reason why Kim Jong Un wants nukes isn't because he's going to conquer the world. It's not because he's going to destroy New York. It's not because he's going to launch a missile, you know, wildly at Honolulu or at Guam. It's because he wants that as a signal that look, you know, I I I'm a serious guy. I can have as you know I don't have as many of these weapons as everybody else does, but I can have one. And furthermore, if anybody really comes messing at me, I'm not going to you know he's not going to fling his nukes. At Hawaii, you know exactly what he would.
0: Yeah, fly the continental United States. He only really had
1: five of them. Yeah, right.
0: New York, Los he Angeles, you know, Washington. No,
1: he'd he fly them at Japan, and South Korea, because that's what he can hit.
0: Yeah, but how does that keep him alive? It doesn't.
1: It, I mean, if the idea is that's, that that's just a kind of a vengeance
0: reflex. I mean, that that has no the, strategic value. Let me let well, me it, let me it, put it, an alternate it, theory yeah. on the table, please. Yeah. As soon as. Kim Jong-un launched his first satellite. That's when I got concerned. Because launching satellites, oddly enough, is easier than building ballistic missiles to carry nuclear weapons to targets on the other side of the planet. You only have to go through the atmosphere once and you're not decelerating, you're accelerating. So the highest velocities are in the exosphere where the air is very thin and you don't have the ablation and and reentry problems. And you put one nuclear weapon, one 20-kiloton or 100-kiloton nuclear weapon in orbit around the Earth, and when you're over the United States at 300 miles altitude, you detonate it, and we go back to the 19th century instantly. And that's his major lever. And I wanted to get Ted Koppel on this show because Ted wrote a book, Keith, pay attention, about EMP and North Korea, and it has been totally under. Represented in the discussion, and that to me—I mean, all he needs is one missile and one nuke, and we're we're toast, unless we can take him out on the boost phase, which is Star Wars, you know, anti-missile defense and all that. Mm-hmm. But see, that to me is his real long game, because that holds—that holds everybody hostage.
1: Right. It just gives him leverage.
0: Huge leverage.
1: The same. The same. But. From his standpoint, and I'm not trying to you know, psychoanalyze with the rest, but, but the simple thing is that from his standpoint, if I was in his position, it it doesn't make me equal to these other larger powers, but it gives me greater power than I had before. It makes me more difficult to mess with. They're not going to come in here and just, you know, try to take out my regime or do something else. it It earns him, you know, again, I go back to Charles de Gaulle and the French nuclear po- force uh, it 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 makes him, a serious player that others will have to note. Hmm. I mean the the mere fact that the French had nukes, not that they actually were important in the in in the balance of power. I mean, in in terms of their actual size, again, they were kind of militarily meaningless in in a general nuclear exchange. Well, wait, wait, wait let me let me
0: let, let me let me drill down into that one because if in fact yeah. NORAD had gotten you know, and we did get a couple of false alarms about Khrushchev and missiles heading for the United States during mm-hmm. the uh, either Kennedy or Johnson years. I mean, they were radar false alarms, but we didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. If we got the go codes, if if NORAD in that era had seen a Valid threat of a nuclear attack, first strike from the Soviet Union, wasn't part of our strategy to notify the Brits and the French because their flight times of missiles into the Soviet Union would be much shorter than the half an hour for our missiles, so they could have been an early, you know, take out as much of the, you know, battle space before we our stuff could get there. So that's the they reason.
1: Help, but also keep in mind, they're a lot closer to Russia than we are. No, that's what I was saying.
0: That's why the flight which, times. Which would have been that so... well,
1: I mean, which means that their missiles can get to Russia faster. It also means that Russian missiles can get to them faster. Right. All right. And that's another one of those kind of hard questions that if you were a French policymaker, which remember, one of the things De Gaulle did was to pull France out of NATO.
0: Mm-hmm, that's right. I forgot that.
1: Okay, he pulled out of NATO, and he pulled the the French nuclear force out of NATO. So there was no absolute guarantee that Mm. in the event of a nuclear exchange between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, that France would become involved.
0: But would the Soviets have relied on that, or wouldn't they have sent missiles to all potential allies, in which case it would have been a total global paroxysm? paroxysm
1: they yeah. might have but but if they, the thing is is that it, within the, the amount of missiles flying around the French the number that the French have isn't going to be a critical difference whether they get there faster whether they're knocked out ahead of time whether yeah, they yeah but set if you take out, out the command and control
0: you know one missile from France into Moscow and there there's goes Moscow so
1: it would probably be a little more difficult than that but I mean I, it's just you know it was it was it was a, a vanity force for de Gaulle it was his way of, you know, so that he would have a kind of card in the ballot. And then one of the things you then always had to be concerned about in some way was that, well, you know, when we're calculating all of this nuke stuff, the French have nukes and the French aren't members of NATO anymore. We don't know exactly what they'll do with them. Mm. See, that's a position which gives you power. Your opponents really don't know what you would do. Okay, so you don't have a nuclear force that's that's massive or critical. But it can do a certain amount of damage and in the place that a north korean nuclear force could damage because they're close and because they're economically important and because he doesn't like them is south korea and japan now
0: okay hang on none of we, that. We, we only right. have uh, two minutes left to sure. the top of the hour so let me hold my question which really you know i'm just trying to be i'm not actually trying to be devil's advocate these are questions that have kind of no 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 can no, no. you know been on yeah. my mind for some time because the when you really start taking this apart, none of the public rhetoric actually seems to make any real strategic sense. So the idea that you could go you know, and sit down with Kim Jong-un, Trump sitting with Kim, and come to a gentleman's agreement based on nothing on paper. Just we're going to be good guys now. We're going to support each other. That becomes so much more plausible if the real physics behind all this is not really there. It's all been a Potemkin village of nuclear, I don't know, kabuki theater. Anyway, hold it there. Top of the hour, my guest this morning, Dr. Richard Spence, we're talking about the world. Trying to make sense of the world. We'll try to make sense of the world when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And just to make sure you're all kind of conscious of what's hovering in the background around all of this, this is a song by a friend of mine named Wright like Wright brothers, Cydonia. What happens to this geopolitical game when Cydonia, for most people, becomes real? We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording. Have the commercials removed? and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest and you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.